0: Hello readers, Susan Rogers is a cognitive neuroscientist and award-winning professor at Berkeley's College of Music, as well as a multi-platinum record producer. She's also now a published author. The new book is titled, This is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. Susan, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? Doing great.
1: Thanks, Trey, for inviting me to sit in with you and with your listeners.
0: It is my pleasure. So what was your goal with this book?
1: You know, there's this moment in the recording studio, I should say moments, at the end of the day, when you finished all the work you had to do and the musicians, the producer, the engineer would just, you just linger in the studio for a bit, sometimes have a beer or something. You always start to talk about music. conversation always goes there. And when it does, I loved how I felt, in a certain sense, on the same level nose to nose with the musicians. I myself am not a musician. I made a lot of records as an engineer and a producer and a mixer, but I'm not a trained musician. And sometimes in those conversations when musicians talk, I can't hold up my end of the conversation. I'm out of the loop because they're talking about the music theory and music practice. But when it comes to music listening, I'm right in the mix with them. And I enjoy those conversations so much. So to answer your question, the purpose of this book was to help music lovers like me feel like, you know what, if you were in that room and that microphone was passed to you, you could hold up your end of the conversation through your love of music. I I wanted to do that.
0: And I think you are uniquely qualified to talk about this. I know I just mentioned it uh, uh, before I hit record there, but you not only worked in the music business for decades, as you just mentioned, but you are still in music, but in quite a different capacity now. So how did you get to uh, the current place that you are at Berkeley?
1: Um, well, I, I made records, uh, worked in the studio for over 20 years, but I began to feel a pull from uh, academic life and from, from uh, sciences. I thought that I would really enjoy a career as a scientist. So I did something that's either smart or really dumb. I left the music business in 2000, right when I had hit my stride, the peak of success. I left the business. I entered college actually as a freshman when I was 44 years old, and I did eight straight years and I got a PhD. My PhD was in a program in uh, behavioral neuroscience at McGill University in Montreal. And I just so happened to study with Daniel Levitin, who wrote This Is Your Brain on Music in 2005, became a bestseller. And I studied with the great uh, Stephen McAdams. So, with these guys, I'm now getting a picture of how music works from that shortest pathway of all, from your eardrum to right above your ears, your auditory cortex, and what's going on up here underneath our hair, as Prince would call it. What's going on here when we listen to music? Prior to that, I knew what was going on in the studio, but now I knew a little bit more. After I got that PhD, that led me to Berkeley College of Music in Boston, which is, it's just fantastic. I was able to teach in two departments, music production and engineering, Having conversations with the young record makers of tomorrow and uh, liberal arts, where I taught music cognition for a time and then psychoacoustics for many years, te- teaching both the art and the science of music.
0: Interestingly, when talking about working in music and more of that producer, engineer, mixer capacity, you found yourself asking uh, a pretty interesting question for somebody that is around music and loves music as much as you are, and that is whether listening to music actually mattered. How was your perspective changed by the great Miles Davis?
1: I'm still asking myself that question because listening feels so passive and relatively unimportant. And I am embracing the idea, (laughs) I could be right or wrong, but I'm embracing the idea that it's vitally important and that listening itself helps breathe air and life into the body that is music and and changes it you know the, the, the music we buy the music we consume is changed by by what we listen to so back in the 80s I was working with Prince and he called and said uh, can you come to the house the house was where he lived in Shanhassen, and he had a recording studio, a nice one, down in the basement of his home. He said, come to the house. Miles Davis is coming over for dinner, and uh, I want to play some stuff, which meant I had to pull some tapes and be ready to listen with Prince and Miles uh, after they were done with dinner. Tough job. Yeah, really tough. (laughs) So uh, they came downstairs after eating and Prince and Miles were with John Nelson, Prince's dad. John Nelson was about Miles's age, an elderly gentleman at this point, and uh, also a jazz musician. And, And John Nelson and Miles were having this conversation about pants. So they came downstairs into the studio and Miles parked himself right in front of me. I'm standing at the tape machine. He's in front of me. He's got his back to me. And he and John Nelson are going back and forth as to whether or not these pants exist and john nelson is i've seen you on tv in these striped pants miles is saying no you don't i don't have striped pants and they're going back and forth yes you do i saw you on tv where did you see me on the grammys back and forth back and forth and then all of a sudden without warning miles just spins around put his face right in front of my face and he said yes i do they're made out of eel like in vietnam and those words just don't go together (laughs) and i went eel like in vietnam and he just started hammering off questions like who are you where are you from what do you do how long you been here blah 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 and you know I wasn't gonna back off from that I work for the five foot three inch guy in the high heels sitting right over there you're (laughs) not gonna intimidate me that easily I've been around the block so I held my own with him and I just locked eyes with him and just bam 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 back and forth and then finally he says, you a musician? I said, no, I'm not. And he said, that's okay. Some of the best musicians I know aren't musicians. And that was the end of it. But that was one of the greatest moments of my life. And I never stopped replaying it in my mind's eye and trying to figure out what he meant by that? I've heard from other folks who played with him that he would instruct his musicians to play like non-musicians. And mm-hmm. I think what he meant is that those who don't have the knowledge, the formal knowledge of how music works are in a position to be musical in a very unfiltered way. So how would a three-year-old make music if they could? How would a 95-year-old make music if his or her body didn't get in the way? So music is an expression of life. So in theory, anyone who's alive should be able to express themselves musically. So when he said some of the best musicians I know aren't musicians, I think what he meant was that there's musicality in all of us, and sometimes that musicality can be expressed in ways that don't involve having an instrument in your hands or singing on a mic.
0: And uh, what you do with this book is you break down the musicality of the listener, although you do get to the uh, the music producer at the end, which I also found fascinating as somebody who's worked in radio production in my life. May get to that a little bit later, but the seven layers of an individual's listener profile includes three aesthetic dimensions. That would be authenticity, realism, and novelty, and then four musical dimensions, melody, lyrics, rhythm, and tambour not to be con- <laughs> not to be confused with timber, which good is timbre. how I've called it my entire life because I'd only read it on paper and never seen it actually spelled oh. out. But we'll start with uh, chapter one, which is authenticity, which you uh, subtitled. This is what expression sound likes. What are record pulls, and why do you love them as it relates to authenticity?
1: Oh, uh, record pull is a good time in the recording studio. So often, if you're doing a whole album, especially, you're going to hit a creative wall the ideas just aren't flowing. Studio time is expensive. So sometimes a a record producer will say, all right, folks, it's time for a record poll. What that means is the participants have to come and bring to the poll two or three records that just make you weak in the knees, records that you love. Now, ideally, they're records that not everybody else knows about, because ideally, you'd like to turn your poll mates onto some new music that they might not have heard before. Or if it's a well-known record, you want to get them to hear it with new ears. So what you have to do in a record poll, when it's your turn, you have to say why this record just kills you. And it's not enough to say, oh, I was in high school and I went to a concert. That's just an autobiographical memory. What is it about this record? Is it the melody? Is it the timbres? Is it the style of the performance? Is it where your mind goes? Is it what you visualize? What is it about this record that expresses the music of you? And if you can do that, that makes a record pull a very intimate and fun way to share because you have to be in touch with yourself, your musical self, in order to describe why you love a certain record. And your pull mates are getting to know a really private place in your head. When we listen to music and we fantasize or daydream, no one else is in there with us. That's our private place. No one else knows where our brain is going to go. What our brain is doing is searching for treats. It's searching for, in a record, those things that make you happy. It could be a lyric. It could be a groove. It could be a sound. Just anything. Things that make you happy. So when you're sharing with your friends, here's what makes me happy Hmm. musically they're getting to know the music of you. It's an intimate kind of sharing and it's a lot of fun. We opened the book with it because I wanted listeners to imagine being at a record pool themselves and imagine what they would bring if they came to a pool. Just this morning, I answered a a letter. Someone uh, emailed me through the the book's website and uh, it was a big, long thing. It was great. But this guy said, I did not like, the records that you described in this book, there were maybe only three or four of them that I actually liked. I thought the Shags was the worst music in the world and I I didn't like it at all. And I I wrote to him and, and and I was thinking, well, then I did my job because I didn't want people thinking in this book that it's a book about the music that I like. I deliberately included a few records that I liked, but only in those sections where I'm saying, it's my turn at the record poll, here's a record I love. Other times I'm assuming that people have diverse taste. So I wanted to put in records that in some senses, maybe in the majority of of times, someone would say, yeah, I'm so not into this record. Good, because now what you need to do is think about the record you are into. It's a book about the listener, not about me.
0: Well, and I think you explained that pretty clearly too. Like, I was following along with my Spotify on my phone whenever you would uh, mention a song, and especially obviously if you're saying, go check this song out and then come back and continue reading. And the Shags didn't do it for me. But because you had already laid that groundwork and let me know kind of what it was, and it's something that's really heralded by people who work in music. And you wait until after the suggested listen to explain why you enjoyed that album, even still hearing it and being like, oh, this is a muddled mess. This is just a complete cacophony right now that is not uh, coexisting with my ears and my brain all that well. I started thinking immediately why you might like something like this. And it did have to come down to the authenticity of it all. And the fact that these girls in these horrific situations that they grew up with were still able to uh, to get on the uh, the the same uh, off sounding page that they were when they recorded music in the studio.
1: Yeah, for those who don't know, the Shags were a, a trio of young women, teenage girls who grew up in rural New Hampshire in the 1960s, and they had this really domineering dad who believed that his daughters were destined to form a pop band like the Beach Boys or the Beatles, and they were gonna be famous, famous. And he locked these girls up, literally, in a room. He pulled them out of school, he didn't let them date, and he uh, kind of forced them to write songs and play. They couldn't play their way out of a wet paper bag. They don't even know how to tune their instruments. They don't play in time. It's nonsense, but if someone were writing a book on art, painting, let's say, it wouldn't be out of line. To start with a child's finger painting, not because a child's finger painting is great. Shags are not great. They're the equivalent in music of a child's finger painting. But you might include a child's finger painting in a book on art in order to say, we all have an impulse, a drive to express ourselves. We don't always just express ourselves with our speech We express ourselves with our drawings and our mud pies and our make-believe games that we play as children, and we can express ourselves on musical instruments by pounding drums or finding a chord on a musical instrument. What the shags strip bare and make obvious to us is the human desire to express yourself musically. This is why record makers, professionals have a high regard for the shags. Because listening to them reminds us of where we started. It reminds us of that three-year-old with the pots and pans and the little kid with, you know, my first guitar or whatever it is that they have, the toys that they play with. You want a little bit of that? In your music and on your record. You want musical performance gestures that sound as if they're coming from the heart and aren't overly constrained by learning and theory and technique. Just play what's in your heart. The difference is that the trained musician can actually play, can actually tune their instruments, knows how to be on time. But the the shags are important for that reason. I'd never argue that it's great music. It's a great example of a dimension of music listening.
0: That being authenticity, I think it's also a great example of humans' desire because we are these social communal creatures to make music with one another too. Because as you pointed out, like even though it's – a complete musical mess. They're they're weirdly on the same messy page too.
1: That's really bizarre. It also it illustrates and I'm glad you pointed that out. The synchronicity among musicians yeah. that it's a group activity for the most part. We get together, combine our individual voices with the voices of others to make a collective where the whole is other than the sum of its parts. Um, the the shagged were all, uh, they're all bad, but they're all bad in the exact same way, which is really amazing.
0: So chapter two is realism. This is what music looks like. It has to do with what your mind is seeing when you listen to music. What do you mean by this?
1: So my co-author and I uh, were looking for data on what people visualize in their mind's eye when they're listening to their favorite music. And I didn't find any out there other than autobiographical memories. So we collected data. Now, I had always assumed that people saw in their mind's eye what I see when I listen to my favorite music, which is I picture the band in the studio. I've been doing that since I was a little kid. My memories of listening to the radio and records include my mental imagery of picturing James Brown and Sly Stone and the Rolling Stones.
0: This was long before you actually worked in the studio.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to be there. I wanted to see them performing. And uh, my co-author was completely the opposite. When he listens to music, he doesn't want to see people at all. That ruins it for him. He wants to see imaginary spaces, abstract shapes and colors, worlds that don't actually physically exist. He wants his imagination to soar. So we're both looking at each other going, oh, that's weird. So we decided to do a, a, a major survey of music listeners in the United States to assess what do most people see in their mind's eye? Turns out the most common answer was uh, autobiographical memories. People listen to music in large part. This is about 25% of respondents. In large part, they listen to music to remember people or places or times in their life. That's rewarding. That's the treat they're seeking or one of the treats they're seeking when they put a record on. The second most common answer was the story and the lyrics, which really surprised me. People will make up stories not necessarily involving themselves or even involving the artist. They'll, they'll picture the story. That was very common. So naturally, those folks are going to be gravitating towards those musical artists who write lyrics you can visualize. Uh, they're not going to be as interested in instrumental music because they're looking for a treat and they're going to find it in the lyrics. Many other people will visualize just nature scenes like the beach or mountains and video game players tend to visualize rooms that accompany music because they're so accustomed to that the room that goes with this record all of us are different some of us visualize ourselves playing which i try to do i'm not good at it but i get a little bit of a treat from imagining that i can sing like that or play like that i can't sustain it for very long it's not (laughs) me what i am is i'm someone who was born to be sung to and i like visualizing the players I'm glad that I went into the music business because it allowed me to make that treat a, a, a reality. So that's what it refers to. Some of us like realistic records where we can have realistic visualizations of the instruments they played, what it looked like in the studio when they were all there. Others of us, like my co author, we want to detach from reality. We prefer abstract records, meaning records that are made with electronic instruments that are harder to visualize, just sounds, sound sculpting, per se, and often songs that don't have lyrics. Uh, Folks who like electronic music, uh, techno and trance and stuff like that, tend to report that their favorite visualization tends to be abstract shapes or colors or other worlds, fantasies disconnected from the actual real plane of
0: of earth. Yeah, I tend to uh, side with you, although there are examples of otherwise. nothing, uh, Very few things in this world are, are completely black and white. I tend to prefer more realistic music. But interestingly, preference for real versus abstract isn't necessarily absolute across artistic mediums. Why is this, Susan?
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. So what you're talking about is the fact that And this is true of these of all these aesthetic dimensions that we can have a fondness for novelty, innovation, invention in one art form and have a fondness for conservative gestures in another art form or another stimulus. So in the case of uh, realism versus abstraction, it just so happens to have evolved that I personally like my realistic records because I want that visual treat of picturing the band, but I love abstract art. Oh, I love abstract art. Cy Twombly and Jean Dubuffet, artists like that from that abstract period because I want to be, when I observe visual art, freed from the dominance of reality. I like interpreting what a painting means myself. I admire the craft in John Singer Sargent's work. I admire the craft great, the way they can push paint around on canvas like that. But the stuff that lights up my Christmas tree and really gives me a treat is the more abstract art. As happens so often during the making of this book, my co-author is the complete opposite. He likes abstract music, but he likes realistic art. Hmm. So you see, you're seeking a similar treat, but in different media. It's not unlike food and fashion. Some of us have a really wild tastes in fashion and we might be maybe we live on cheeseburgers and pizza traditional conservative tastes in food not adventurous at all or it can be the complete opposite so i like the saying from the biologist darcy thompson that says uh, everything is the way it is because it got that way hmm. your early experiences interacting with stimuli in your world either gave you a reward or a punishment. It either worked for you or it didn't. And often this happens several times. And then you say to yourself, your reward system says, yes, that's me. That was great. That worked out for me. I'm going to do that again. Or your aversion system says, now we warned you, don't eat that. <laughs> so this time, next time you come to this restaurant, don't be so adventurous. Go with the usual. Everything is the way it is because it got that way. We all became these unique entities that we are.
0: Chapter three is novelty. This is what risk-taking sounds like. What does novelty have to do with an appetite for risk, Susan?
1: So we have got these two circuits in the brain, the nucleus accumbens and the caudate nucleus. And I like to imagine it like this. Let's say three or four of us were out in an empty field and a spaceship came down from outer space and landed in that field and the pod bay door opens and there's some alien there now you're sitting there and you're looking at this alien and this nucleus accumbens is in. is this a good thing or a bad thing should i approach this or run away from it and you're standing there and you're all waiting some folks are going to be a little bit more adventurous than others so let's say the adventurous person says I'm going in. They're just standing there. Probably nothing. I'm, I'm going for it. <laughs> they go in. And their caudate nucleus is saying, don't do it. Don't do it. The nucleus accumbens is saying, no, I, I'm going to give it a try. It could be good or it could be bad, but I'm going to go for it. And you go in. And let's say it turns out, well, they give you money or they give you a treat. or They give you something. You're like, this is great. And the caudate nucleus is saying, great. Next time we see aliens, we're going to go ahead and approach We're going to approach because that worked out great. The ones who are shy and hang back are more likely to say, yeah, I think we chose the good route here because that could have been very risky. And even though it turned out great for that guy, I wasn't willing to take the chance. Let other people take the chance. I'm going to see how it works out for them. And if it's proven to be a safe thing, then I'll follow along. So it works a little similarly with art. There are among us these folks who are real thrill seekers when it comes to music several of my students were they're gonna check out the real fringe elements and those kids will report back you gotta check out king gizzard and the lizard wizard now a few people are be maybe listen to it for a little bit and hate it and they won't ever go back But enough kids. Listen to it. Talk to the other kids. And sooner or later, someone you know and like and respect is going to say to you, this band is truly great. It's safe to approach them. You will probably like it or find something that you like about them. I'm amazed at how fast King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard have uh, turned into this hip band that everybody needs to know about. At first, they they were one of those fringe bands but that's how new musical styles get incorporated. So some of us have an appetite and enjoy checking out those fringe elements. We'll spend our time, we'll risk social embarrassment to turn people on to music that's out there on the fringes. Others of us are like, no, you go first or let me just wait until that particular style starts getting a little bit more mainstream until I hear other artists doing similar work And then uh, once I realize it's musically safe, then I'll approach it. Now there are folks on the left side of the bell curve, the bell curve of novelty and popularity. Folks on the left side, they're like, I don't want any fringe music at all because I love traditional styles. I love reggae or gospel or folk or blues or traditional rock. That's the street I live on. This person might say, why do I need to go looking for innovative styles? I want the technical perfection of a classic form of music.
0: Yeah. And the older we get, the less likely we are to be musical risk takers, too. And I guess that's kind of the case in life as well, where, you know, your brain is not even close to fully formed as a teenager. It starts getting, can't call them final touches because the brain is always change, uh, changing. But those last major changes happening in the mid to late 20s. And I guess that's the point that your musical proclivities tend to settle down to. See, I'm an exception, though, because I, even though I love musical realism, these two things aren't necessarily uh, opposite. I am also somebody who is a bi- big fan of musical risk and things that sound a little bit different. And even though it seems like that would fall more into the abstract category, and it certainly can, th- those t- those two worlds can exist together, too, right?
1: yeah i'm similar to you in that i like realistic records in the sense that i like records that are made with instruments i can picture
0: Mm -hmm. that appeals
1: to me because that's my fantasy and when i hear electronic music i appreciate it some of my students have really turned me on to some great pieces pieces i can genuinely say i like but it's not what i reach for most of the time when i want to listen to music because when i want to listen to music i want my realistic fantasy but I also do get rewarded from musical innovation. Uh, when students turned me on to 100 Gex, King Gizzard, other new bands like Tennyson, whom I really like, I listen to them and I'm intellectually, intellectually rewarded. So the seven dimensions that I'm describing in this book are describing seven different ways, different regions of the brain that can independently give us a treat. So you don't need all seven of them to be exactly perfect for you. All you need is one on a given record. So with Tennyson, I I, I, I haven't really assessed their performance gestures. I haven't really thought about it. I haven't assessed their lyrics. I haven't thought about it. I haven't assessed their melodies or their rhythms. What I remember from listening to them is, yes, yeah, it's, it's all okay. i got other stuff that does a better job of that. When I'm listening to Tennyson, I'm listening for their innovative ideas which is rewarding to me when i listen to another record a classic record let's say i've had Credence clearwater's fortunate son in my head all morning when i listen to that i want the realism of that record we want different treats at different times
0: you cited a brain imaging study conducted by robert zatorre's team at mcgill university what did they learn about the link between musical novelty and mental rewards
1: so the robert zatorre study looked at participants in a scanner. They're listening to various clips of music in different styles. And they're watching where in the brain it lights up. And then afterwards, they ask these participants to report, give me a dollar value. Give me a, a monetary amount. How much would you pay to hear this again? And zero was, I never want to hear this again. And $2 was, I'd pay the most possible to hear this thing again. I really liked it. So it did, his study did show that novel music can be rewarding, but when novel music, music that's novel to us, a record we've never heard before, when it is rewarding, it's because we found a treat. We found some element of that record that just happens to activate an area of our brain that then communicates with the dopaminergic pathway and says, yes, for me, a little bit of dopamine was just released. That can be the lyrics or the melody or just the style of the record or just about
0: anything. So, chapter four is melody, and with melody, we start with the musical dimensions melody, lyrics, rhythm, and timbre. Now, these musical dimensions, as you point out in this book, are processed by a specialized brain network that provides each with a unique mental reward, and you actually Uh, compare them to different parts of the body. For instance, lyrics are the record's head for obvious reasons. You're thinking about the words. The rhythm is in the hips. Rhythm makes you want to dance. Timbre is the face because that is really uh, one of the primary identifying features of a song, a, a piece of music of an artist. But the melody serves as the record's heart in this analogy. So what is happening in our brain when a melody causes us to feel?
1: So from the time we're very little, in fact, before we're even born, we're hearing the speech prosody of mom's voice through her body. After we're born, we have caregivers taking care of us and infant-directed and child-directed speech is very deliberate. People use their voices to warn children or reprimand them or reward them or soothe them, to engage them, to calm them down. So we're learning how... Pitch intervals and timing correspond to feelings, feelings that someone else has and the feelings or the behavior they want you to have. So as you encode those patterns, you can listen to music and pick up on the subtext via melody. Lyrics are the text. The melody, of course, is the subtext. So a singer might be singing about I feel great, everything's great, things are going great. I'm so glad she dumped me or he dumped me. This is wonderful, everything's good. But if the melody is saying, I am heartbroken and I'm lying through my teeth right now because I feel terrible, we're aware that that feeling doesn't match those words. Sometimes records can be congruous and sometimes they're incongruous. So when we're processing sound, it comes in through our left and right ears, goes up through the auditory brainstem, and splits off left to right. For nearly all of us, the right hemisphere is specialized for intonation, for melody, for the pitch changes in our voices. And for most of us, the left hemisphere is specialized for words, for the information. The left side is a fast processor. It's very quick, the difference between rat, bat, cat, hat, sat. It's the difference in the speech consonant at the beginning of the word. So we get really good. Picking up on just a few milliseconds or tens of milliseconds of a sound and recognizing that's informative. 10 milliseconds of music is not informative at all. This right hand side, right side for most of us, is the slow processor that looks at the relationship of the pitches over time. Is your voice rising or falling? Is it getting strong here or weak here? If you ask someone, Did you open the window? That's a slightly different question than. Did you open the window? Hmm. Did you open the window? Did you open the window? Those all imply something different. And all I changed there was the pitch and the amplitude and, to some extent, the timing of my voice. We learn what what those things imply. Our our melody composers know this very well, as we all do, from implicit knowledge. And so they can write melodies that express feelings and emotions um, very effectively.
0: Yeah, you just mentioned the song that has really sad lyrics, but upbeat instrumentation. I love songs that are the opposite of that. I'm sure I would like some songs that uh, that qualify as such, too. But like everybody hears Otis Redding sitting on the dock of the bay and they assume it's just this chill, happy-go-lucky song. But you listen to the lyrics, the guy is not happy at all. Same goes with Blind Melon, No Rain. Very happy sounding song. The lyrics are are not at all. I love those contrasting themes when it really works in music.
1: Yeah, I, I list in the book, the example of trains uh, mm. as fifty ways to say goodbye. Yep. And he's singing, my heart is paralyzed. Oh, she was my everything. Oh, she wanted <laughs> Superman, not super minivan. And he's like, oh. And in the chorus, he's describing all the ways he's telling his friends that she died. She fell, was eaten by a shark in the water and she fell and no one caught her and she got ran over by a crappy purple scion. <laughs> But the music is mariachi horns. The music is happy. And so we get the sense like, oh, this guy's just complaining. He's fine. At least his, his band has his back. And he's saying, oh, guys, it's terrible. It's awful. It's awful. But the music's saying, oh, you're okay.
0: I love how you just put it. At least the band has his back. That's great. By <sighs> the way, that, another little factoid that I learned in that chapter, I'm not going to have you expand on this because uh, we don't have all day. But the fact that babies, cry in their own native tongue just completely blew me away. So folks, you should check this book out for a lot of reasons, including reading a little bit more about that. Why is ambiguity a valuable lyrical tool?
1: In an ambiguous lyric, it's easier to make it about ourselves. Uh, The late mythologist Joseph Campbell wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, He wrote about archetypes and he wrote about universal truths it's really tough to learn to be a great lyricist beginning lyricists tend to write about themselves and their own experiences which aren't particularly interesting to people who don't know them but if a lyricist can climb up that ladder of skill they can eventually write a lyric that's about everyone that universal truth not just about them the quintessential example of that is Brian Wilson and Gary Usher's In My Room. There's a world where I can go and tell my secrets to In My Room, do my crying, do my sighing, laugh at yesterday. Simple, simple, simple lyrics. Anyone who's ever been a teenager, can relate to that. Your room is your sanctuary. So lyric writing, when it's ambiguous, provides a slightly easier path for us to determine Oh uh, yeah, I think that's what he means. I think that's what she was singing about. Yeah, I get that. I totally get that. Odds are good that you don't get it at all. Hmm. I was just talking with a songwriter friend in Nashville yesterday. And he he talked I was talking about a song of his that I absolutely loved. It wasn't at all what I thought it was about. Hmm. Uh, all this time i had been thinking it was about one thing, it was about another. It doesn't matter. All that matters is what I think it's about. That's that personalization. And that's why lyrics uh, can serve as a form of self-identity. We internalize these words. We make it about us, whether it is or not, we make it about us.
0: You have a pretty funny story involving the fictitious nature of really good lyrics fooling the listener. And it involved a band that you worked with, Bare Naked Ladies, and their song Call and Answer. What Happened?
1: Boy, I sure do love that song. And when the record came out, the stunt album, I have a younger brother and uh, the younger brother, John, he met his sweetheart when he was young. He married her. They've been together ever since going on 40 years. And uh, John just loved that record. And, and he told me, uh, he, said, you know, he said, I've never broken up with anybody, but if I did, that would be the song I'd want to sing. That just knocked me out because what it means is this man is listening to a lyric about an experience. That he's never had but he can easily imagine this is what it would be like if we split apart i'd want to say this hmm. and when a songwriter can write about something that allows you to occupy their place their headspace vicariously it's very strong it's very potent so i went to stephen page who had written the song and i described you know what you did there you you wrote a song that someone else embraced as being real even though he's never experienced it and Stephen, at that time said i've never experienced it either (laughs) he said it was it was pure fiction it was just the product of his own imagination great writers can do that
0: that is so cool so chapter six is rhythm this is what music moves like why is rhythm your favorite musical dimension
1: Rhythm is perhaps the fastest and easiest of all the musical dimensions to process. So you observe little toddlers and they have this impulse to wanna to bounce up and down, to wanna to move their little bodies to, to music. It's a very strong human impulse. Why would that be? Why would circuits in our brain listen to a musical groove? And if it's in a certain tempo that matches how we can move, and if it's clear and obvious and repetitive enough, even little toddlers will say, yes, include me, let me express myself too. And rhythm is the fastest and easiest way to express yourself. You don't need any musical training to know about chords or you don't need uh, to even understand. And sometimes we like lyrics that, that we don't even understand songs in languages we don't speak, but rhythm is easy and immediate to understand. All of us have a sweet spot in our physical bodies that corresponds to how we like to move. I've always been well aware that I can't stand that up and down pogo stick dance that people do at rock concerts. It's extremely popular. A large percentage of people want to dance by going straight up and down. Nor am I able to, to my shame, able to do the Latin dances where you move side to side, syncopated rhythms and move it side to side, yeah. I would like to try, but as my friend uh, and the artist, Neil Lara said to me once, he gave up trying to teach me how to do Latin dance. He said, eh, forget it, it's in the blood. It's (laughs) not in my blood. (laughs) The dance I like to do is a more front to back kind of thing. It feels right for my body. It feels right for the music that I enjoy. I like getting down in my hips and knees, but not swiveling them, going front to back, not side to side. So all of us have these bodies and have this impulse to move our bodies. In response to music, some of us do it better than others but we have a sweet spot in our motor cortex for rhythm based on how we like to move.
0: Like you I could never figure out the salsa I wanted so badly to my but my mind and body just would not allow it to happen. But uh, I do love a good twist and if we're at a wedding. I will twist to okay. every song imaginable, much to the embarrassment of my wife. Unfortunately, in my mid-40s, Susan, it's becoming harder and harder to maintain the twist over the course of m- many songs because my hips just start hurting too badly.
1: <laughs> First off, I would have guessed you were in your 30s, but you. yeah, I, I know what you mean. Once we once we, we lock into that groove, and it's kind of going to be our dance for life, so you <laughs> folks who do that headbanging rock dance. You're going to have to figure out an alternative for when you get
0: older. No question about that. Now, for the longest time, it was believed that only humans can experience rhythm. But how did a cockatoo and the Backstreet Boys shatter that myth?
1: So it turns out that there are very few species, very few, that can lock their bodies to a musical rhythm. Chimpanzees can't do it Apes can't do it. Monkeys can't do it. They can lock to a metronome, but a metronome is not a musical rhythm. Metronome is just tick, tick, tick. It's an indicator of when an event's going to happen. So a monkey can be trained to lock to a metronome. But musical rhythm perception takes place in higher order circuits that are similar to reading. So a monkey could learn to recognize the letter T, let's say, on the page, that doesn't mean that the monkey can read. In order to read, you have to be able to organize individual symbols into words and into sentences. So that's higher level processing. And it's the same with rhythm perception. In the book, I use the example of Missy Elliott's Get Your Freak On, where there are 34 unique percussive hits per bar, it's a lot, it's a lot. We can take all 34 of those hits and we can organize them into here's where the downbeat is, here's where the upbeats are, And we can move our bodies in sync to those or to the offbeats. Anyway, turns out that there are a couple other species that can do this too. And that would be members of the Pinnocene family, the parrots. uh, Cockatoo is the example in the book. And some members of the pinnipeds, seals, although the Pinnocenes do it more spontaneously than the seals do. Seals can be trained to do this. Mm -hmm. But uh, this cockatoo, Snowball, you can look him up on YouTube, Snowball, will groove like a b-boy when he hears music that's in a certain tempo and has a strong rhythm. This cockatoo has 14 different unique dance moves. He does this pose thing, he does this side to side, he does this thing where he lifts his foot up and head bangs. Snowball's got 14 different moves. The reason this is possible for pitocines and for humans is because we've got a feedback loop from our motor cortex to our auditory cortex. So what's happening is when you listen to music, first, your auditory system is saying, okay, got it. That's kick, snare, kick, snare, Hi hats are in the middle. Okay. Got it. And then it sends that signal to the motor cortex, which locks it up to a timing mechanism and says, okay, this is this is this is a bar. This is four bars. This is how this rhythm goes. Now the motor cortex takes over and it says audio system. I'm going to tell you when to pay attention. Mm-hmm. I've got this now. So your motor system locks on and tells your audio system. You can look away because this is just the three and nothing's happening right here. But turn your attention back because the four's coming up or you can turn your attention away in bar six and seven. Nothing good's going to happen here, but we're getting to the end of the eighth bar, and eight bar sections are ubiquitous in Western pop music. It's the end of bar eight. Bring your spotlight of attention back because I bet something cool is going to happen here. There's going to be some kind of change. So, those feedback systems, motor and auditory system, talking to each other back and forth, enable us to lock our bodies to a groove. Now, it's thought that this is because we are vocal learners. We can lock our bodies to someone else's voice. We can sing in a choir. We can imitate the voices of others. And we can learn to modulate our own voice based on the feeling we want to impart. Dogs, for example, have a set of vocalizations. There's a bark, there's a growl, there's a whimper. They got a set. They don't modify that set over the course of their lifetimes for the most part as a species. A hippopotamus doesn't do it. An elephant doesn't do it. But vocal learners like parrots, some seals, human beings, we do modify our vocalizations over our lifetime. Our motor system and our auditory system have these feedback tracks and they're constantly communicating with one another.
0: Chapter seven is timbre. This is what music conjures. For anybody who's unfamiliar, and by the way, it's spelled T-I-M-B-R-E. What is timbre?
1: I took a whole graduate level course on timbre perception. Timbre is the sound, the unique sound of an instrument, the difference between a Gretsch guitar and a Gibson Les Paul and a Fender Stratocaster difference in their timbre they all have six strings and they have a neck and a body they're all electric guitars but they have a different tone to them we humans are experts at vocal timbre in particular so we evolved as a species to be really at telling what's going on with people based on their voice i don't know what people are going to assume about me based on my voice because i've got i've had a sore throat but a voice can indicate a person's age can indicate their mood, can indicate their weight, it can indicate their health. When we're feeling weak or strained, our our voices get weak as well. Women have strong preferences for male vocal timbre, and men have strong preferences for female vocal timbre. Now it turns out, all right, ladies, get ready for this. Uh, it turns out that women with sexy voices actually have more sex than women with sexy bodies. If Sex is measured by the age in which you started, how many partners you've had, how many times you may have cheated. Those are measures of your sexual behavior. It's higher in women with sexy voices compared to women with sexy bodies. Mm -hmm. This is thought to happen because early human beings evolved in a really dark place. Caves and jungles, forests, it's pretty dark. And you often have to find your mates when you're done with the food, foraging during the day, you're mating at night. You have to find that mate in the dark. So the body doesn't matter so much, but the voice is an indicator of whether or not this person is interested in mating with you or not, wants you to get the hell out of there. So (laughs) we evolved to have strong uh, preferences for timbres. Record makers, our sonic signature is based on our idea of what constitutes good in a performance and in a sound. Do you like your deep dish snare? Do you like your piccolo snare? Well, for some songs you want one, for other songs you want the other. What does a fat kick drum say? What does a a small kick drum say? We have associations with the timbres in our musical world. And uh, those are powerful deliverers of emotion as the late Effective neuroscientist Jack Pankset said, sound is a special form of touch.
0: Powerful indeed. As a matter of fact, I know you share this in the book, but Johnny Cash's rendition of Hurt, the Nine Inch Nails song, Hurt, the timbre of that song was so powerful that Trent Reznor, after he heard it, said something to the effect of that song is his now. And you actually have a story from your own music career that uh, really showed to you the power of of timbre as well what happened involving prince and the classic song when doves cry
1: right around the time of the purple rain album prince wanted to pick up rock music lovers as a body of listeners bob Seeger was really popular then peter gabriel and others and prince is uh, he likes rock music as much as the next person and he wanted to write some rock songs he wrote purple rain and that worked out well for him. When he first wrote When Doves Cry, his aim was to make it a rock song. The very first iteration of When Doves Cry actually had really heavy timbres, heavy drums, heavy, heavy guitar sounds, if you can imagine that, a heavy distorted bass. It was a heavy song and he's singing, this is what it sounds like when doves cry, but that isn't what it sounds like when doves cry. <laughs> he, the lyric didn't match the timbres of the song at all or the mood or the feeling he was trying to convey. So he stripped it all back, to hell with it all, took off the bass, took off the guitars, brought down the tones of the drums, made them made them lighter, kept the drum pattern, but not all the distortion on the drums, and then began by introducing new timbres, lighter, more percussive timbres. What this did is it conveyed a gentler, lighter feeling. Now, of course, this record opens with a guitar solo. <laughs> Dig, if you will, the picture. And then that guitar goes away. And he clears space timbrily for his voice to tell this story. And that lead line, dun, 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 is saying something. It's saying, saying it briefly, gently, sweetly, in a very staccato, simple melody by the time he gets to the tagline this is what it sounds like when doves cry it's consistent it's one performance gesture from his voice to his lyrics to his melody to his rhythms it's one performance gesture at some point in the making of the record he realized i've got such a rhythmic vehicle here i don't need the bass and he was able to cut the bass out and put it out the way it was Mm. that song became his first number one single
0: Oh wow, I hadn't realized that. So how much input do you have when he's going through that and changing everything up? Is he asking your opinion on if this sounds better than than that? Prince
1: was someone who um, was his own producer. He knew exactly what he wanted. His ear was so well-shaped that he knew what he wanted. Hmm. He rarely needed to ask someone for their opinion in the studio. He was extremely opinionated. He had a strong sonic signature and he was just manifesting the music he was hearing in his head. I know of no one else who was this great at coming up with full arrangements in his head and moving from one instrument to the other. When he had doubts about things, he would ask, what do you think of this? Or what do you think of that? But not that often. He was very different from most other artists who do ask. When you you work in the studio with other artists, you go through timbral selection together. The engineer and the producer are in the control room. They're listening to the sounds and they're, assessing, do these timbres, do these sounds, match this song, the mood of this song, lyrics of this song? Is, is it right for this song? Sometimes, we talked about this earlier, sometimes you want incongruity. You want sad lyrics with happy music or vice versa. Other times you want them all to be saying the same thing. You have no way of knowing what's right or what's wrong. All you have is this internal compass connected to your own listener profile of what constitutes good, and you're just assessing, will this work? Will this connect with listeners, or is there something blocking us? Prince was smart to recognize that the first version of When Doves Cry wouldn't work. It wouldn't be the beloved song that it is, because it didn't make sense. Those heavy timbres didn't make sense for that lyric and that melody. Different timbres were, were called for.
0: So this conversation has started to step into chapter eight, which is form and function. This is what it sounds like to a record producer. I love that you make this pivot here because uh, I do find this world fascinating. I think others who love music, which is pretty much anybody listening right now, there are a few exceptions, would also be at least a little bit interested in this side of things as well. What exactly is synthetic listening and why is it an important quality for a good music producer?
1: So in the book, I'm uh, citing a very early and famous listening example from the Acoustical Society of America that makes a distinction between analytic versus synthetic listening. So when we take music lessons in our youth, provided we take those music lessons for long enough, we develop a capacity to listen to sounds, all sounds, analytically. What that means is your auditory nerve bundle going from your cochlea up up to the brain, it's fatter and thicker. The nuclei in your auditory brain path get fatter and thicker. So you grow more branches on your neural trees, let's say. You become an auditory athlete. So trained musicians are faster and better at hearing out the individual pitches in a chord, at recognizing subtle distinctions in a a spoken accent, let's say. That's analytic listening. When I'd be listening uh, to music with students at Berkeley, you know, a song would play and one of the kids would say, dude, I just loved that, you know, that was in seven four time in that section. And then I thought, oh my God, I just count to four. And then I start counting again. They're able to hear these subtle variations in the hi-hat. Doesn't mean that they have better hearing per se. They have better auditory processing skills than Mm. I do and better auditory memory. That's analytic listening. They might say that one string on the guitar is out of tune. I can do that a little bit, but not to the extent that my students can from their musical training. What I have is something called synthetic listening. Those of us who are not trained musicians, we're better able actually to listen to the global whole because I'm not focused so much on individual chords. I'm listening to the emotional expression in a record. I'm listening to the, the synthetic wholeness of it. And I've often noticed that students, when they analyze a record, will analyze its component parts. And I'll have to ask them, yeah, but what about the feeling in the performances? Was that singer feeling it? And often they haven't, they haven't heard that. They, have, they haven't even attended to it. They were so enmeshed in analytic listening. So an analytic listener can learn to listen synthetically but a synthetic listener like me, past a certain age, can never learn to listen analytically. These circuits have to grow in your youth. Some folks, folks on the autism spectrum and, and some others may be non-musicians and yet they can hear analytically. If you want to try it out, your, your listeners can Google analytic versus synthetic listening and they'll find an audio example online. Also through the book as well, we provide links on thisiswhatitsoundslike.com. You can see what kind of listener you are.
0: This is what it sounds like.com. And uh, you also tell your music production students at Berkeley to grow the seed. Don't be the seed. What do you mean by that?
1: Oh, I suppose, you know, it was thought back in the early days. And it was probably true in large part that a record producer comes into the studio and they behave like a dictator and they just tell you, here's what you're going to do. And you're going to do what I say to do. I believe in the early days of pop music making, it went like that. But after the 60s counterculture revolution, it didn't go like that anymore, not for the most part. So what a record producer should be doing is coming into the studio and meeting with the artist and trying to assess where their songs are coming from, just like the shags. What are you trying to say? What do you want people to know about you? What do you want people to experience when they listen to your record? What do you want them to think or feel? How do you want them to move? What's the music of you? And how can I help you bring that out of you so that it connects with people like me, listeners? So that necessitates you pulling music out of people, pulling performances out of them, pulling timbres out of them, pulling ideas out of them. That's what I mean by growing the seed. They're coming to you with the seed, these songs in a raw form. Here's the lyrics, here's the melody, Here's the chord changes. This is the tempo I think it should be in. Maybe we'll change the time signature, but generally here's my time signature. That's the seed. How do we turn a song into a record? In this book, I deliberately reference records in every chapter because that's what we're talking about. I'm not talking about songs. That's a a different kind of book. Talking about records, the recorded version of a song.
0: And chapter nine is Falling in Love, the music for you. What happens in the brain? when a person experiences love at first listen? It's
1: like love at first listen with a person or love at first sight, I guess it's called. Somebody, you know, you're young, you're, you're thinking you know, it'd be nice to have a mate and you're out somewhere in the world and someone walks into a room and suddenly, for reasons you can't explain, this person just gets you resonating. This person, I'd be the way they look, the way they talk, something they said, something they did. I can remember the times I've fallen in love at first sight. It was an instantaneous moment. And I I couldn't say why this person and not these other people. All I knew was that I felt it. And actually that feeling as mysterious as it is can be mapped in the brain. So when we fall in love with a record at first listen, It can happen instantly. What it generally means is that one or two elements on this record matched our own personal sweet spot on one or two dimensions. And it spoke to us, and it sounds like the music of us. When that happens, what we do, and it feels like this, so you can probably relate to it. When that happens, we go into our own heads We stop focusing on the external details. We sort of, in a way, take that record and that listening experience, we bring it into the privacy of our own mental room and we savor it and we engage with it. We relish it in the privacy of our own feelings. What's actually happening is that the elements of that record, some of the elements, the ones you respond to, have released dopamine. Well, initially opiates and then later on dopamine and you
0: feel good. Random final question, Susan. I know that he, I guess, was in the same line of work because you d- do something different now. But do you have a relationship with Rick Rubin at all? Because I feel like listening to, to the two of you, one, I could listen to the two of you, not just talk music theory, but also probably general life philosophy all day. But what is it about music producers having this uh this heightened sense of awareness? Oh, that's
1: lovely. I Of course, I know uh, who Rick Rubin is, and I haven't had the the pleasure of meeting him. He's on the West Coast, and I've been on the East Coast for quite a lot of years. When we make music with people, we have to look at them. We have to listen to them. We have to move in sync with them. Music makers, and this includes record producers, score very high in empathy. Mm -hmm. We are good at reading the feelings and the musical expressions of others. It's how we make a living is reading what's coming off these performers. So you get really good at empathy. That can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. But in order to pull music out of people, you have to feel what they're feeling at the moment that they wrote it, at the moment that they played it, and you can get very good at it or not. (laughs) There are producers Well, let's go ahead and pick on the late uh, Phil Spector, who was known as a tyrant in the studio. You wouldn't call him a touchy-feely kind of producer, didn't seem very empathetic at all, but he was a genius, and from a theoretical perspective, he knew how to make records work. My heroes in record production were the late uh, Sam Phillips of Sun Records and Sun Studios and the late Rick Hall, of Fame Studios and Muscle Shoals. They're my heroes because of how adept they were at hearing a hit song, at knowing when a performance was great. I always tried to follow in their footsteps and be someone who had that keen of an antenna and could hear a good record the moment when I, could know it at the moment when I heard it in the studio.
0: She is Susan Rogers. The new book is This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. Susan, thank you so much for the time today. Congra- uh, congratulations on this book. And thank you for turning me on to the Parquet Court song, Stoned and Starving. I love that one now.
1: Oh, that's funny. They uh, they reminded me a little bit of Cage the Elephant and other bands from that same era. And uh, that's really cool. I, I I just chose the song. It wasn't in my playlist, but I needed something that had a four on the floor, kick drum. And I thought, okay, this will be cool. I liked it. I liked the video.
0: Thank you so much, Susan.
1: Thanks, Trey. It's really nice talking with you. Thanks for putting up with me in my weakened voice.
0: Oh, the pleasure was all mine, Susan. Thank you. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at gentlemanjesus.com. And thanks to you for tuning in. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit booksonpod.com. Talk to you next time on Books on Pod.